Coming to you live from a shack somewhere in the Old West, my name's Tom, and with me as always is a cantankerous old prospector, and this is the Modeling Learning Podcast. Episode 3962, The Iceman Cometh. Welcome back to the Mildly Alarming Podcast. I'm Johannes Stauffer. And I'm Tom Rich. And today we're going to talk about a game called Hero, not the sandwich. Is, is there, it the sandwich? Is, is there a sandwich called a hero? Some people say hero instead of like gyro or hero or oh, some see, other confusing way of pronouncing that. See, I never order those even though I like them because I don't know how to pronounce it. Also, apparently in according to crossword puzzle clues, uh, in certain places, a, sub, a submarine sandwich is just called a hero sandwich, just spelled H-E-R-O. <laughs> I don't know that that's actually true, but that's what crossword puzzles tell me. I think if you're going to call a sandwich a hero, you need to put a cape on it. Yeah. Like It could just be like a big leaf of lettuce that you pin around it with a toothpick, but it's got to be wearing it. Or like a big piece of salami. Just an, e- an enormous salami cape? Yep. Salami cape sounds like a euphemism for... um. I don't really know actually where I was going yeah, with that. I'm, yeah. I'm going to kick you right in the salami cape. <laughs> wow. Yeah, take that. So yeah, we're going to talk about Hero, a game of pen and paper, which is another game we're developing alongside Trolls vs. Dragons and Big Man and probably a half dozen others that I don't remember and I'm supposed to be working on, but I'm not. Wiki Sleuth is one of those. Slicky Wooth. Wookie Sleuth. Wookie Sloth? Yeah. I'd watch that movie. <laughs> Did it still pick that up? I heard it. Oh my god. Tom swallows louder than anything on Earth. Apparently it's true. You I can hear it from space. <laughs> if you listen to our podcast. In space. Right. We should send our, our podcast to NASA and see if they'll have the astronauts listen to it in space. <laughs> Does Well, you know, it's like a, a scientific experiment. The effect of just really really low-grade podcasting on humans in space. In zero gravity. Yeah. yeah. How does it impact them, and how does that differ from what happens to people on, on the regular Earth? Right. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll get to my contacts at NASA and see what they have to say. Sounds uh, good. Yeah, okay. All right, good. So Hero is a game that we're working on, which is a tabletop pen and paper RPG. Um, and so we're going to start off the hour... By discussing, I think, the difference in development between pen and paper RPGs and regular board games, which is, mm-hmm. are the two things we've worked on so far, uh, and then transition from there into a discussion of Heroes' base mechanics and how that works. Now, a pen and paper RPG generally is going to have a much longer and more involved rulebook than mm-hmm. any kind of board game would have, so we're not going to go into the full uh, details of every little bit that we've worked on so far, um, but we'll just talk a little bit about the basic mechanics and how those work and then... I'll roll on from there. If we tried to go through all of the rules that currently exist, uh, we would be found here by archaeologists, just dry skeletons, dead in our chairs with the mic still on. 
That's better than a wet skeleton. <laughs> My skeleton is wet. Mine's perfectly dry. Presu- presumably. You assume? Yeah. Yeah. Mine's entirely dry. That's gross. Yours is gross. Yours, you're going to get mold in there if you <laughs> don't dr- dry that thing off. Towel down, man. Do you suffer from skeleton mold? <laughs> So Tom's going to be driving most of this one because he's been, uh, as you'll pick up pretty quickly because of all of the uh, nerdy math type things related to the design of this game, uh, been the driving force behind this. He mostly just emails me ideas and I tell him that they're bad and he should uh, be sad and quit, give up on life. more or less our entire relationship in a nutshell there. (laughs) Yeah. I, I pour my heart and soul out to you and you explain why that's just real pathetic it's bad and wrong and you're a mean person and you should feel bad about that i don't we all know i feel no remorse so uh the the basic idea behind this game can we admit this that that we're just trying to make zelda the tabletop sure because i just did but i can cut it out later (laughs) no we're fine (laughs) we can admit that yeah so i was thinking uh we want that that kind of general look and feel that the the Zelda games, maybe not look, because that would be really ripping them off, but yeah. the, the feel that the Zelda games give you. It's this long adventure that a one hero, a lone hero undertakes, but um, different side characters pop in and out of it to help mm-hmm. on the way, um, and they provide a varying services. And so the thinking was that in any given group of, of characters in here, there would be one at a time who was taking on the mantle of the hero, and it would have various special properties related to that. Uh, and the other players would um, control secondary characters who would support the pe- hero for some period of time. So you might, uh, one way to do it, and we, we haven't quite nailed down exactly how to uh, have this work yet, uh, but one way to do it would be to have uh, a hero character that rotates from player to player, mm-hmm. and everybody else controls supporting characters for a given time, and then you rotate as well who is running the game as the villain, controlling all the villain, bad guys and monsters and traps and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, another way to do it, if you had one player who could show up more consistently but just have other people who would float in and out is just have them do supporting characters and the person who's always there run the hero. Mm-hmm. You could have multiple heroes that pass the baton from one to another, so each time a player takes on the heroic role, you uh, roll up a new one and they control that one. For there, you know, there's a lot of ways it could go, but the the kind of core thematic idea is you've got the one person who's running the show, who is the center of the narrative, and the rest are kind of ancillary to that narrative. That's the thought, at any rate. That that first got us going. On yeah. This. Well, that's pretty much what you've made, right? I mean, I know we haven't had a lot of time to put into the um the supporting character development yet. Yeah, the, they're not mechanically very different at this point. But that's more or less what we're getting at, right? At this stage of the game. One of the things that I thought was interesting about it is um, we've very deliberately made the person who would otherwise be the game master or dungeon master or what have you um, be the villain. Mm-hmm. Uh, you often run across uh, DMs in Dungeons and Dragons or other D20s and tabletops who uh, aren't great uh, dungeon masters because they have a um, DM versus party kind of mindset. They're mm-hmm. they're they're adversarial and that doesn't tend to work very well in that sort of setting because the dm is all powerful and can just you know rocks fall and everyone dies Mm -hmm. um but we're kind of building this whole game around the idea that um the game master really is more the the evil mastermind and villain Mm -hmm. than than the benevolent you know dungeon master god who controls 
what happens, but isn't necessarily out to get you. Right. So they're going to they're going to certainly be taking the gloves off a little bit. I mean, there's there's in any tabletop RPG, there's going to be that element of judgment of what makes for the most fun game, what makes for the most interesting story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we're going to we're never going to get away from leaving that in there. But, yeah, we've certainly called them the villain and they are acting villainously twirling their mustaches all of their mustaches there are many many mustaches yeah just a row of them down the face <laughs> uh-huh. yeah um so that's sort of the basic idea with hero and one of the things i immediately noticed as i was typing up rules and emailing johannes about them and whatnot is that designing trying to write a tabletop rpg is very different from trying to write a, a one box board game type of deal mm-hmm. um in that you are covering so many different sort of situations you're trying to write a set of rules that will allow you to cover you know sneaking into a castle and fighting a goblin and fighting this that and the other and like interacting with shopkeepers or nobles or whatever Mm -hmm. that the rules just ballooned and like we wanted to keep this pretty simple but they they rapidly got fairly long just in order to have enough weight to cover all of those circumstances and part of that might just be that this is the first time we've tried to write part of it is also that that's just the way we tend to do things our our games balloon out of control pretty quickly i mean yeah big man we set out to build a a game that fit on a lunch table that you could play on your lunch break we were like we want it to fit in your pocket not take up a lot of space and be quick to play and now an average mm-hmm. big man playthrough takes what 45 minutes roughly an yeah. hour maybe yeah and and takes up an entire dining room table by the time the board is built uh and then you know we, we ran into the same thing with math wizards it just mm-hmm. kept getting bigger you, you keep adding rules trying to trying to account for different scenarios and suddenly you have this big unwieldy monster Mm -hmm. and with i think you're right the the fact that it's not a you know fits in a box game means that you have to try to account for uh things that you have no idea what they are yet kind of like expansions but not even expansions Mm -hmm. you have to leave things open-ended enough that um players can work out stuff that you didn't explicitly state in the rules but also that could work with you know monster types or or whatever that that we never even thought of because Mm -hmm. it is so much more open-ended as a as a design well one of the things too that i noted while writing was that um where in a board game i could get away with just telling you the rule and not worrying about how it may explaining how it fit the flavor or Mm -hmm. the theme i felt like in a lot of cases in uh, hero i needed to write out exactly what this was supposed to be evoking to give the player an idea of what to do with it mm-hmm. like with um if it were a board game when i was defining the, the types of defenses a given character has mm-hmm. in a board game i don't think i would need to go into that much detail about what each one explicitly represents right because it's always going to be clear which one you're rolling against and which one is raised and lowered and whatnot right in a tabletop rpg there's enough flexibility that you really need to, need to know the distinction between the different values and what they're meant to represent and what kind of flavor they're supposed to bring so that you can adjudicate what one to roll against in any given circumstance. Mm-hmm. And because there's not a dungeon master uh, to make those calls, because you know, with, with your GM as a as the villain, as someone who's actually playing against the characters, you mm-hmm. can't just say, well, they'll make that decision, mm-hmm. um, which I think has made it even harder probably for sure. you to to uh, leave those open-ended, open-to-interpretation um, kind of rules and stats out there. Yeah. You know, if you get if you get a, an argumentative player who's like, no, I don't think that should be against my vitality, that should be against my whatever, mm-hmm. 
you don't have the person who is, you know, the hand of God final word. Mm -hmm. So you just, you have, you have to make sure it's written out, um, in the, in the rules in a way that is, is clear in the first place. Right. And that's, that's been a source of contention as I work is trying to figure out how much, how much you can say the villain is the tiebreaker in any given circumstance and how much you really can't if they're, you know, opposing the players in that way. You want to get into the guts of the game as it is yeah, let's, currently? Yeah, so let's look at the, the guts. Now, there's a bunch of statistics and whatnot wrapped around all of this and different defense values and stats and whatnot that each, each character has, but the core die-rolling mechanic of the game, um, each player has a dice pool, which rep, which uh, is a certain number of dice, D6s, D8s, D10s, and D12s. And it varies from character to character exactly how that breaks up, but it always comes out to 15 dice. And whenever you take an action, you can roll as many of those as you want in order to complete the action. Um, it's a success system, so you have to roll above a certain number on a given dice in order to succeed at that action. So say I need threes to succeed on a given roll, and I roll, I decide to roll five of my dice. I might pick all of my d6s, because they got a good chance of getting above threes. But if I pick a d8, it's got a better chance of getting right. above threes. Flip side, I probably have fewer d8s available in general. Right. Um, you might need one or more successes depending on the exact action and the difficulty might go up or down depending Mm -hmm. on it. Then once you've rolled those dice, they move from your dice pool into your spent pool where they're no longer available to be rolled, but they're not really unavailable either. They're going to come back relatively quickly. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that represents you've exerted yourself now. So the more you put into a roll, the more you exerted yourself in trying to succeed at that, the less you'll be able to do on the next turn. So you could conceivably, you know, try to pick a lock and this is the first action you've taken today. And so you take your entire dice pool of 15 and you roll 5d6, 48, 3d10, and 3d12. Mm-hmm. All of them. But now you've used all those dice. Right. And so you, you had a very good chance that you were going to pick that lock because you threw a whole lot at it. But now you can't do anything until you restore those dice. Right. And dice from the, dice from the spent pool will come back pretty fast. Like, mm-hmm. you, you, each character has a recovery value, which tells you how many come back each round mm-hmm. of, of combat or whatever scene you're in, and we'll cover scenes in just a minute. But each round, you get back your recovery number in dice, so it's usually between, I think, I think it usually comes up between two and four, with mm-hmm. one and five possible, but not likely. So you're probably going to be pulling back three or four of your dice per round from that spent pool. But using them all at once is probably still a bad idea. Probably. Yeah. Most likely. Yeah. So then... So that's kind of how the the flow of the game. You pick you you're spending your dice to do that, and you're getting a few back each round, but maybe not as many as you're using up. So you've got to kind of manage how many you have, balanced against how hard whatever it is you're, the thing you're trying to do actually is. Mm-hmm. A second thing that can happen to your dice is that they can wind up in your injury pool or your wounded pool. There, you've taken damage. The dice are moved down to that pool, and those don't come back until you receive healing. So if you take an injury, you you know get stabbed or get poisoned or whatever. You're going to be slowed down until you do something about that injury because they're not going to recover back up. You might not just not have any D12s available for mm-hmm. a while. And as you get injured and as you recover, whenever dice are coming back up, they're working their way back toward your die pool, whether from injured to spent or from spent back to ready, They, uh, you get the lowest value back first. Do you, How do you lose dice to injury? Get, get hit. Right, um, but so... Do you also then lose the highest value dice first? Yes, you you work it from the highest available dice that can be injured first. Okay, and then uh, and as you lose dice, you start at the highest and work down. 
as you gain dice back, you start at the lowest and work up. Okay. So it's harder to get back your really good dice, but it's pretty easy to lose them. And so as a, you know, we, we haven't really, the, the play testing is pretty early on in this one, which is to say I've done a few tests at my kitchen table by myself uh, with my cat looking on, seeming worried, like, are you okay, man? That's you're, so lonely and you're, sad. You're playing, you're playing board games alone. at night, uh, thinking about you, sadly. And he's, he's all, you know, sitting in my lap, like, just, just, just interact with me. Don't be such a sad sack, you poor, poor man. I'm like, it's fine, dude. I'm just, uh, I'm play just talking to here. a cat by myself. Yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> so we, we don't know exactly how this, this comes out in, um, in practice, although it worked okay the times I've tried it. Mm-hmm. But as a designer, it's interesting because it gives me a lot of levers to pull on um, in that I can, man- whenever a, a, a given action, you know, that the player is trying to take, I can adjust how difficult it is. So how, what number you need to roll to succeed at it, which can make given different dice more or less valuable. I put it up to a difficulty seven. Suddenly D6s are completely useless. Right. And it's something you can't do unless you're pretty well rested and have most of your dice available. Mm-hmm. I move it all the way down to like a two. Suddenly it's something you're going to be throwing every dice you want at it. Right. Um, similarly, you can manipulate the uh, number of successes you need to do it or how number of successes impacts it. So you might say, you know, kicking in a door, you need three successes to knock it off its hinges, but only one to break a hole in it or something uh-huh. so depending on how many dice you throw at it you might have a better chance of accomplishing something more like that well, it occurs to me as you're talking about setting difficulties for for challenges that uh, another another challenge in the design process is going to be um setting constraints for the villain mm-hmm. so that he or she can't just say this door is a is a 13 good luck sure and so the the current way I'm I'm I, I've written the rules down. I don't I don't I didn't have you read them ahead of them because they're kind of they're they're definitely in beta mm-hmm. yet. But the current way I'm thinking with that is that given the strength of the party, so the strength of the hero and the supporting characters you're up against, measured by how many adventures they've completed, mm-hmm. as well as you know the, their basic stats and all that, you get a certain number of points to spend to buy your villainous stuff, okay. monsters and traps and whatnot. And higher difficulties cost you more to get a hold of. Okay. There's still some fudging, still some judgment in there. Uh, I think any tabletop RPG is going to rely on not playing it with that guy. Right. Um, To some degree. Mm-hmm. Now, we'll, we'll need to minimize it here, but I don't think you can get rid of it entirely. Right. But that's kind of where, where that's headed. Are you still... I know very early in the just spitballing ideas part of this process we talked about having the villain have a pool a much larger pool of dice but still a a dice pool basically to to spend throughout the design of a dungeon or a or an adventure Mm -hmm. um on you know monsters and challenges and whatever they they choose to throw at the party um is that still how you're going or have you with a little more uh generic points and then dice are going to be based more on what type of challenger or i've got a little little of both they've got generic points that they use to buy the creatures to begin with Mm -hmm. but then they also have their overall villain dice pool which might be like 40 dice Mm -hmm. which they then you roll in order to have the monsters and traps do stuff Mm -hmm. and they've got a recovery rating they get dice back similar to how heroes and such do um so yeah they've got they've got a similar idea going on okay they also regain dice when the heroes choose to stop and rest because why not? That seems yeah, reasonable. That makes sense. If the heroes are resting. You don't have to do anything because they're resting. So you can rest and as you a get, villain. And you get your dice back. 
and then you have those dice. Get yourself a little pedicure, manicure, on your claws. <laughs> um, so the other kind of central mechanic to Hero that we're, I'm working with is the idea of a scene. Um, and so a scene is any uh, event or challenge or part of the story where it's very time, con- the, the t- amount of time things take matters and success or failure matters. So like hitting up the shops in the town, that's not really a scene because it doesn't really matter what goes on there. Just like, yeah, you buy your stuff and then you go on the adventure. Mm-hmm. But like combat is definitely a scene where success or failure, you need to roll the dice to figure it out. Climbing up a cliff, um, sailing your boat through a storm, having a contest of pottery with somebody. Uh, anything like that is a scene. Now, the time frame isn't necessarily the same all the time mm-hmm. in these. You know, the the boat is a long a long scene. The, um, what do you call it? Uh, the combat, that's a quick one, relatively. Right. These sorts of things. But in all cases, they still function the same way. It's a series of rounds. Okay. So on each so, round... So a scene, if it's a scene, it always drops you into turn-based Always, action. yeah. If it's that, te- yeah, scenes or anything that requires turn-based action. Okay. That's another good way to put it. Probably yeah. simpler and more direct than the way I put it in the rules. We can probably cut 11 pages out because yeah. it took me a while to explain this business. <laughs> um, and so you've got your scene and it's going to drop you into combat. And the way a round works is each thing that's going to act in a given round chooses how many, what they're going to do at the beginning of the scene, of the round rather, and how many dice they're going to commit to it. Mm-hmm. So I am going to hit the goblin and I'm going to roll four dice to try to hit him. I'm going to climb the cliff, and I'm going to roll seven dice to climb it. You know, whatever the case may be. Right. At this point, the villain also explains exactly how this, the mechanics of the scene work. Things like, you know, you, you've got the cliff available to climb. you know, you got to lay out what's going on in mm-hmm. the scene, too. Depending on how abstract the scene is, it might may or may not take more or less explanation. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody rolls at once. You've figured out what your difficulties are, roughly, uh, at this point. And then... Uh, Things happen in initiative order. Each character and monster has an initiative value. Mm -hmm. Your initiative is that value plus however many dice you rolled. So the fewer dice you roll, the faster you go, but the less likely you are to succeed because you're being hasty. Right. And as Treebeard teaches us, don't be hasty, young hobbits. Right. So then you start at zero. You work your way up through the initiatives and you resolve those actions. That's kind of it. If you rolled equal to or above your difficulty on at least one of your dice, you generally succeed at that action, depending on exactly what it is. Uh, if you didn't, you don't. And then your dice that you used are spent. And, they'll come, and at the beginning of the round, you'll, you'll then regain your recovery in dice hmm. for the next action. I, it's probably just because you used the examples of uh, crossing the sea in a boat and then immediately after climbing a cliff. Mm-hmm. But uh, you could probably fairly easily make uh, the Princess Bride the tabletop out of this. Princess Bride is a, is another story I've had in mind yeah. of things that I would like to, this game to be able to simulate. Um, Lord of the Rings is one I'd like it to be able to do pretty mm-hmm. well. Like, like, one of the things I do is I'm developing this RPG is I, I'll go into a spreadsheet and just make characters for it just to see, can I make that guy in my system here? Did you make Wesley? I didn't make Wesley, but I did make most of the Fellowship. I just haven't done the, the Hobbits yet. Mm-hmm. Did you make Wesley Crusher? Ooh, good one. So that's the idea with scenes. So, like, you might, like, your, your, it's, it, it does, it might, it seems a little weird at first glance, I think, that combat and a boat crossing use the exact same mechanics. Mm-hmm. But the way I figured it is that suppose your recovery is four and mine is three. Mm-hmm. In, in combat, that's intense, very short amount of time, but it, it 
demands a lot of you physically right away. Sure. So you having a quicker recovery there, that's still going to help you at mm-hmm. that point. Boat crossing, each roll might represent a lot more actions taken over that time, but in general, that round system will still, you'll still generally be able to recover faster and do more than I right. will if you've got a right. higher recovery. Yeah, so it's, it's abstracted a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, another example I use later on in the rules document is racing to translate a document uh, faster than a rival scholar can do it. Mm-hmm. So like one part member of the party might be actually trying to translate it while other members of the party try to slow the other guy down or find dictionaries of rare dialects that they can use to help translate and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And that would still use the exact same scene structure because, you know, your recovery there is representing your ability to sit down and freaking focus on translating and, you know, all of this sort of stuff. And, stuff that I can't do. Right, right. And uh, run around the town. Is there to, Adderall in the game? Uh, you know, I could I could develop <laughs> rules for attention deficit disorder, yeah. I'll, I'll, let me note that. So it still uses the same kind of system, and I think... I think it'll work. Mm-hmm. I don't know. We'll find out. I th- I also think that most tabletop RPG players are going to spend most of their time fighting orcs with it. So. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's that's what you do, right? That's, that's why I play. Orcs, orcs exist to be fought, and fighting implements exist to fight orcs. Mm-hmm. So yeah. wh- what else would you do? Kumbaya? I, uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> So something I noticed as I was uh, reading your your latest rules document here, and, and I've noticed that we when we've talked about this a few other times, um, you've got a, a few. I, I don't want to say heavy handed, but um, r- rules and mechanics that exist to, if not force, at least strongly encourage role playing mm-hmm. to the point that, um, like it's pretty easy to to check out and just play the mechanics of Dungeons and Dragons. Yes. You can you can get through a game of Dungeons and Dragons and never really differentiate yourself as a person from your player as a as a character, right? Mm-hmm. Or your not your player, your character, like the party member that sure. you are representing. Um you can just, you know, roll the dice, do the thing, finish the game. Um but you've got stuff here like in the scene section you talk about um uh rolling dice for uh for actions at the beginning of a round the participants who are capable of acting describe the action they intend to take and then hold the dice they intend to roll in a closed fist mm-hmm. um you can't say how many dice you're rolling you use qualitative terms like quickly or lumberingly like you're already forcing a level of engagement in like this is what my character is doing in this world uh that most people not, I'm not, I'm not going to say most people. The people who would not usually role play are going to be super uncomfortable with. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. It's just interesting. I think it's um, maybe a good way to get those people to engage to realize this isn't really all that hard. It's not sure. that scary. Everyone else is doing it too. We can just you know everyone else is doing it. Come on, come on. <laughs> yeah, I'm part of that. Of of that rule was was kind of a, almost a mechanical consideration. I didn't want people sitting at the table, gaming who would act first. Uh huh. Like sitting there going, "You roll three dice because that way your initiative comes out to six, and mine will come out to five if I roll two, and that way I'll act first and this, that, and the other." Uh huh. Because that didn't feel right. Well, you know, even with this mechanic, everyone will still be able to do it because they can see the dice that you have still on your. Sure, I can still. You're ready and and spent areas i feel like a player who's willing to look at everybody else's sheet and count dice like that and run that math in their heads cannot be stopped from behaving in that <laughs> well, manner yeah, no that's absolutely so, the case 
I'm I'm willing to th- I'm willing to make his life uncomfortable a little bit, yeah, I guess, yeah. to do it. Um and I and you you're right, I think it does give an easy way into the role playing. Mm-hmm. So they can at least at le- at the very least you're saying, Well, I'm gonna lunge at him real fast like when yeah. I try to stick him with my knife. Yeah. I think you mentioned that too when uh in an earlier draft of the magic mechanics, because mm-hmm. I'd included something like you need to describe how cool yeah. your magical power yep. is. But I'd include I'd phrased it and written it up in a way that sounded like you absolutely had to do that regardless mm-hmm. of anything and your power didn't work if you didn't if you weren't cool enough. Role play it or you do, role play it or you don't get to play. Yeah. Uh and that's a good point though. You can't go too far in the other direction and force people to role play in a way that they can't really role play. If you're if your description of your of your magical fireball doesn't stand up to Tom's master's in creative writing opinion of what it should sound like, it just doesn't go off at all. There's yep. no fireball, you failure. I have to be sitting at every table playing hero <laughs> so I can adjudicate whether or not people are role-playing well enough. You've been really rocking the word adjudicate today. I think this is number five is it since really? you got to my house this wow. morning. Uh, <laughs> I, I have no defense. It's of two on action. this podcast at the very least. <laughs> Oh, well, that's good to know. Yeah. So uh, that's here. Have you gotten anywhere on the... I know we've gone back and forth and you've you've had at least two iterations of the magic mechanic. How's that coming? Well, the first iteration of the magic mechanic was, was the thing that prompted you to say, this is the most fiddly thing you've ever written. Yeah. And prompted me to reti- think about just quitting and just moving somewhere and farming beats and just really just calling it good on the whole board game thing. I'm glad um, to steer, glad to, glad to hear that I still have that you know that edge. <laughs> but uh, looking back, it was pretty fiddly. I th- I think it could be an interesting sort of mechanic for later for another game. But whatever, it was it didn't fit with what Hero was. Uh-huh. Um. So the current version of Magic that we've got is, is there's a skill system in Hero. You have uh, a certain number of points in a skill. Mm-hmm. Uh. So for each point in a skill, you can reroll one dice when using that skill. So if you've got points in combat when mm-hmm. you make an attack you can re-roll that if you've got points in lore when you try to figure some out some ancient lore you can re-roll that and so what i was kind of thinking about when i designed the magic system was what if we don't tie magic to you know a specific study of it but just you get so good at something you become supernaturally good at it mm-hmm. so it's not i'm a wizard who does wizard stuff it's I am such a good swordsman that I can hit you even though you're not physically standing close enough for me to hit you with my sword. Mm -hmm. Or I am such a good swordsman and I've learned how to cause my weapon to burst into flame and I can light you on fire with it in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if you want to be a magical character, you just put more points into a skill beyond the basic three. Normally you can only put three in, but if you start putting four, five, or six in... You start picking what magical effect can you have on that skill. Okay. Is it that you can hit people far away? Is it that you can set them on fire? Is it that your use of the skill is particularly inspirational? Um, that kind of stuff. And there's a, there's a list of stuff you can you can apply magical effects. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's two downsides I came up with for for magic. First up, uh, it's revealing. So there are certain enemies and the uh, the villain in general that when you use magic, they spot you. Mm-hmm. That you reveal yourself to them. So I, the the scene I was thinking of when I wrote that was um, in Fellowship of the Ring. They're trying to cross the Misty Mountains above Moria uh, on the Pass of Karathras. Mm-hmm. And Gandalf lights a fire for them so that they don't all freeze to death. And he says, I've written Gandalf was here in signs that anybody can read from here to, I don't remember where he says, but, you know, across the land. So the idea being that when you use magic of some degree, 
you know, people like Galadriel or Sauron can see, or Saruman can see that. Mm -hmm. So there might be powerful villains who can spot that. And like the real basic way that could work, and I haven't quite nailed down how I want to do it, is if you choose to use magic, the villain regains more dice. Mm. That's interesting. That's kind of the base way to do it. But otherwise, it's just the, um, you know, the villain might be allowed to to take some action or whatnot as a result. The second thing that using magic does is it's exhausting. So every time you use a uh, um, a magical talent, you gain one point of weariness. And when your weariness equals your recovery, recovery is how many dice you get back each turn, mm-hmm. you lose the weariness, but your recovery drops by one point. Okay. And you don't regain that point of recovery until you rest. Okay. So then, so suppose my recovery is four, and I use four of my magical talents. Mm-hmm. Now I'm at three recovery. Now I keep using them, but, but it's going to drop again when I hit three. Mm-hmm. Then it's going to drop again when I hit it. So it becomes faster and faster. So the more right. you use, the more tired you get, and the less you're able to do both magic and stuff in general because you're not going to be getting your dice back at the same rate you were before. Well, I, I like that uh, that you've made magic sort of a thing that is appended to your existing uh, talents because it sort of fits the um, Legend of Zelda mm-hmm. kind of thing where he, he never really casts spells, but he gets you know the arrow of light or whatever. Mm-hmm. Magic is a thing that tends to apply to an object or a skill that Link already has, right? Um, and so it it it's I think it's fitting. And the weariness mechanic is cool. I like that. Yay! The only time I can really think that Link gets spells is in Ocarina of Time when he gets like that Din's fire and Nero's yeah, love right. fire's wind. But those are even still those are sort of objects, right? You equip sure. them to a button. Yeah, I mean that's partly just because that's how it needed to work. But I always thought of them as, as more mm-hmm. objects rather than right. But that's the closest he gets to yeah, kind of a, yeah. a standard spellcasting mechanic. Yeah. So that's magic. That's the magic system. Cool. Well, we're at uh, about a little over halfway through here, and we have another exciting segment lined oh, up really? for you. Has it gone up. that long? Yep. So, um, if you have any input on on Hero, if you'd like to check it out, actually any of the games that we talk about on here, um, if you ever want to play test them or or have any input for us, please do let us know. We're always looking for play testers. We're always looking for uh, ideas to make our games uh, better so that people can play them and enjoy them. So um, you can hit us up on Twitter at mildly alarming. You can shoot us an email at mildly alarming mildly alarming show at gmail dot com. Uh, you can leave a comment on the website at www.mildlyalarming.com. Or you can go on a lengthy adventure filled with singular characters, danger, and excitement to find us in our Iron Tower, deep in the land of Scary Town. We'll be there. Yep. We're there right now. And now a word from our sponsors? Yeah. The Mildly Alarming Podcast is brought to you by Lord of the God King, the third book in Beardsley Q. Meat Puff's epic fantasy saga. Following the events of King of the God Lords and God of the Lord Kings, Lord of the God King sees Horatio's fate in doubt and the land in chaos. Will he rule in this fresh hell, or will the Red Mouse get his heart's desire? Look for it in bookstores everywhere. Can't get enough of Meat Puff's epic tales of romance, danger, and intrigue? Look for the Companion Trilogy, King of the Lord Gods, God of the King Lords, and Lord of the King Gods, exclusively on Clay Tablet this fall. Welcome back to the Mildly Alarming Podcast, everyone. I'm Tom Rich, and with me as always is my clone son. I'm your clone? Yeah. I'm, like, way bigger than you, and we don't look even remotely similar. It wasn't a very good 
cloning <laughs> process. Like it was. <laughs> listen, mistakes were made. Apparently, yeah. Uh, and we're uh, we're we're introducing a new segment to the show tonight called Games from Our Childhood, uh, where we are going to find a game from when we were young, when we were we were tiny men, uh, and we're going to play it, and we're going to see how that works out for us. Yep. So. Earlier today, we went over to Johannes's parents' place and we looted a couple of games from their basement that he had played when he was young, and we're going to play Eureka today. Or as we discovered when we looked for the rules document, apparently when it was originally released, Gold Grabber. Well, that, that's what it, that's the literal translation in, from the German. I, I thought right? it might be, yeah. See now, uh, if you hadn't guessed from his name, Johannes's family is, is German in origin, and uh, so they had a couple of German board games in their basement. This, Eureka, and another one called Saga Land. Now, I can remember vividly being a young man, because we've known each other since we were, what, eight, nine, something like that? However old you are in fourth grade. Yeah, young. Uh, I can vividly remember going over to visit him in his place and wanting to play Saga Land, and he never wanted to. I could never once talk him into it. And even now, all of these many moons later, he still... Would not. He's like, no, we're playing Eureka first. And then he punched me really hard because he's mean. The thing is that I, I loved Saga Land. I always have. And so I don't know why I didn't want to play it other than to uh, to, heart, to hurt you, just to, to make you unhappy. So. I think you usually wanted to play Warcraft 2 instead, oh, well, which yeah, worked out okay yeah. for both of us. Yeah. Or Diablo 1. That was a good game. <laughs> we should play that. Yeah. We'll have to find a computer somewhere that can host what like an IPX network connection. Or yeah, something. is that even real anymore? I don't think it is. <laughs> we'll have to go on and buy the uh, the battle dot battle edition or yeah. whatever. Yeah. So Eureka, Eureka Gold Grabbers uh, is a game about cowboys in the old west trying to find some gold. So we'll post some pictures in the show notes, of course, so you can see what we're looking at here. Mm-hmm. I imagine. Yep. And uh, but we got a hex grid board here with some lakes on it. Um, and a bunch of face-down prospecting tokens that we can go to and try to find out if they are gold or if they're robbers or what you know, whatever. Uh, and we basically need to run around, try to get the most gold before the train gets to town. Yep, there's a train, except we sadly appear to have lost the train token. So we're using a dump truck instead. Right, so we need to find the most gold before the dump truck gets to town. Yep. So the youngest player goes first, and as Johannes is younger than me by a few months, he gets to roll first. I am younger. Now, Eureka is a classic roll-and-move type of game, so he rolls the die and he moves that many spaces. It's a single D6, except that uh, instead of a one on the one face, there's a picture of a train, a locomotive. And if you roll that, you don't get to move, but the train moves one uh, one space closer to town. And I rolled a five. And so we're rolling hot. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. I leave my house by the door. Yeah, it's an interesting mechanic. Each house that you start in has a door on it, and you can only enter or exit through the door. So there's a limited amount of er, movement path that you've got available. I've ended my turn on the train tracks, but I don't expect it to move that many spaces before I can get out of the way. One would hope. So I go, I roll a five as well, and I go the one, the two, the three, the four, the five. I head off into the hills to go find me some gold. And another five. I think something is wrong with this uh, this die. Yeah, might be. I'm going to end my turn there, which means I get to flip this token over. So when you end your turn on a token, you get to flip it and see what you got. It has two gold. So he found two gold nuggets. Now... He carries those around for a while, mm-hmm. and kind of the the weird thing about the game is some of those not, some of those tokens will be robbers that could take the gold from him, 
And also, if I were anywhere near him, I could try to punch him and take the gold from him. Yep. So, so until you take your gold back to your house and store it in a lockbox, you could lose it. Lockbox. Here, 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 give me the dice. Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, that's right, thanks. Let's see what we got here. I'm going to go. I roll a six, but I, now I have to move the full distance, right? Oh, I don't, I don't. I don't think that's what I read. I I didn't do my turn correctly. If I uh, if you have to move the full distance, I found online the uh, I think the original translation rules document from 1988, and it just has some some wonderful obviously German writing in English <laughs> bits in here. Only once a year does a train come, so you can leave with your gold. Did you find it though? Uh, if the, die, the I'm I'm using a more recent English translation. If the die shows a number between two and six, the player moves their gold miner to the number of spaces hexagons shown. All hexagons count as one, including occupied ones. During a move, a hexagon may be entered more than once, as long as the player is not simply moving backward and forward between two spaces. Oh yeah, you, you, so it doesn't explicitly state it, but the fact that you can't move back, forth, back, forth, right, makes it kind pretty of clear. So do you want me to redo my turn? No, that's because fine. I, I, we'll just catch up to it. So I'm going to go one, two, three, four, five, six, and go over to here and flip that. And I found a robber. Now, I didn't quite catch how the robbers work. I have to roll. So if you if you find a bandit, uh, which is what they're called in this, are they called robbers in your rules um, document? They are. Yeah, they're robbers in my document. Um, they you, you roll against the number on his hat. Okay. Uh, and you have to, I believe it's match or beat it. No, no. If you you have to beat it. If you match it, you roll again. Ah, gotcha. Uh, if you roll lower, um, he takes any gold and captured bandits that you have on you, and then you move how, whatever your combat roll was. You move that many spaces away from him. Gotcha. Um, if you beat if you beat him, you take him prisoner, and now you have a bandit captive, and they are worth two. Okay. At the end. So my bandit shows a three, so I'm going to roll against him. I rolled a six, so I get that bandit. Nice. I beat him up and I I, I, I take him with me. He's All mine right. now. Dice me. His life is going to be very bad. The train moves. Choo choo. That's a. Uh oh. Sorry. That's right. I'm gonna roll and I'm gonna get a three and I'm gonna go one two three and I'm gonna I'm gonna dig that hole. I found some gold. I like to think this, this is a game about cowboys with a lot of momentum that they have trouble overcoming. <laughs> like, the real, it seems to be that the difficult part of, of this so far is that you have to hit exactly the distance to the thing that you want to land on. Right. One, two, three, four, five. <laughs> I just walked around in a circle. And I got five gold nuggets. Dang. it's a lot of gold nuggets. A lot of nold nuggets. <laughs> I roll a two, so I'm going to go one, two. I'm going to loot that hole. I got three Nold Guggets. The train moves again. Choo-choo! Come, come on, man. This is going to be a short game if you keep moving the darn train. I got a five. One, two, three, four, five. I do a quick do- mosey around in a circle there and find some gold. I got three more. Train. See, this is a weird... like. Let's From a design standpoint, I don't like... The you can't move if you roll the train mechanic because it means your turn is essentially nothing. Yeah, now they're they're super quick turns, so it doesn't. It's not too bad, but still. Yeah. yeah. Like if I if I were designing now, I would still let you have your turn, but the train moves too. Yeah. More nuggets. Good lord, you're destroying me. So many nuggets. Oh no! I got a bandit. 
So now you got to roll. It's a two. So I beat a two. I got a six. I, get to, keep, I get to keep that bandit. Get to keep that He's bandit. Now my bandit tied up in your shack. This is really a very dark game. Yeah. All right. I got a four. One, two, three, four. It's funny when uh, gr- growing up, um, we had quite a few. Two. Remember, you got the raft there, too, you could take if you wanted to. Yeah, I'm going to deposit my gold in my shack. Oh, God. Um, we had a lot of German guests uh, through my dad's business and family, friends, and whatnot. And um, they all were really into, like, cowboys. Mm-hmm. I, it was like this sort of German stereotype, like, Germans love cowboys. It was really <laughs> weird to me. And so that this is... game is just, like, bringing, like they all wanted cowboy boots and hats. And, like, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it was just that hmm. family, mm-hmm. but to me, it always just seemed like I guess I guess Germans are really into cowboys. Huh? It's kind of weird. I wouldn't have guessed that if I had to guess things about the Germans. Right. One, two, three. Got a nugget. The Dang train it. moves again. The train. If that train gets here quick, it's going to be a problem. One, two. Tom is destroying me. One, two, three, four, five, six. <laughs> now all of this is in my house. And so now that he put all of his gold and his kidnapped bandits in his house, he it's safe. I can't steal it from him. Now. Correct. And no bandit can steal it from you. Even the one that's locked in there with it. Well, I assume you tied him up. Yeah, I guess. Uh, yeah. All right. So in my, in my dank desert shack. I'm going to go ahead and go. Three, four, I get on, now when I get on the raft, I can then move it anywhere. Anywhere right? on the banks of that lake. And I believe you don't move off of it until your next turn. I think that's right. In the player's next turn, you move off the raft. And then it just hangs out there. Yep. I got a bandit. These cowboys sure fall over a lot. I got to beat a three. Oh, for the bandit. And yeah. I got a six. So I keep the bandit. I have another bandit. Now I can breed them. <laughs> <laughs> don't, um... Maybe, uh, uh, actually, I'm going to number three, I choose you. Five, I'm going to hop on there and go over to there. Raft your way on over there. Yep, just electric slide my way across the water. Oh, you're going to, you're going to come to the same gold field I did? I'm going to drink your milkshake is what I'm going to do. I drink your milkshake, Eli. Drainage, you boy. (laughs) Go ahead. That was... Less, just as nonsensical. Just loving the, the mental image of cowboys running around in circles in the desert. <laughs> oh, you just got you got to make all these goofy circles to land on exactly the spot you want to to get your nugget. Oh, the train moves. About time something happens to you that's not good. <laughs> Don't train moves we, we, again we have to keep the karmic balance apparently and the well, karmic, balance, the karmic is... balance is apparently that you don't get train rolls and i do right yeah that's karma. okay one two three four i got some more nuggets so many nugs now we've cleared the entire bottom left side of the board so there's not too many left or right side of the board it really depends on how you're looking at it it might be the top of the board that's probably true I'm just standing like a few paces away from my house, but I can't get in. Every time I try to take a step, the train moves and somehow that stops me. I got on a raft again. I'm heading back home. 
get to my house, drop off my deposit all of your winnings and your swag and your second, you know. Yeah. Let's let's not creepy bandit slave. Yeah. (laughs) Oh crap! Oh, you don't don't do it. You stay away from me. I don't think you could... Yeah, you got fast enough to go around. One, two, three, four... So he, he moved to block me from going into my house, uh, which and uh, probably trying to steal all of my gold. I was going to punch you and take your stuff. But I but I rolled high enough to go around it and get in. Now, can you go... In, you can't go into my house and attack me, right? No. Once okay. it's in your house, it's safe. The train moves. Oh, my God. It's getting close. Now... If the train gets there, do we get the gold that we're... Do we, do we only get the stuff you stored? only get the stuff that you've stashed. You've stashed, okay. Do, 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 do. Two more nuggets. And when we used to play this wrong, so the game comes with like 10 blank chits that have no gold on either side of them. Uh-huh. And we just read the rules and those are extra. Therefore, if you lose one, I guess you just like write one on it. But um, we just played with them in the in the box. So sometimes you would go to mine and you would just get nothing. There would just be nothing there. You would flip over a sand token and it would have sand on the other side. And you'd be like, well, I'm glad I dug this hole. <laughs> See, I feel like playing with, with the blanks is actually like a more German experience. Because, I mean, sometimes you try so hard and you get so far. But in the end, it doesn't, it even, doesn't matter. even matter. Yeah, which is which is, as I understand it, the German national anthem. Oh, yeah. I don't know a lot about Germany. It turns out, but for our one German listener that we've noticed from time to time on yeah. the podcast stats, um, hey there, uh, Guten Tag. <laughs> you gonna go? Oh You're yeah, bold. I rolled a five. Yeah. Ah, oh, it's a freaking bandit. Maybe the two. Oh, oh but I gotta re-roll because I rolled. I matched his hat number, but I beat it on the second roll. So now he is my servant. He lives in my house and does what I tell him to do. This game is very dark. It's fast playing though. Yep. Man, you're getting some good gold there. Gold. 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 Uh oh. That train's getting close to the dump truck is coming to town. <laughs> oh crap. I got Uh-oh. a really bad bandit. It's a five. I gotta roll a five or a six to keep this keep this going. Uh oh, Gary. And I matched it, so I gotta re roll that five. And I roll the train, which means I lose everything, don't I? Yep. Well, everything you haven't banked. So this all goes in, back into the box, is it? Or does it Where does, does it go onto the board? Lower than the... Uh, collect all the gold that is lying on the table in front of the player. All gold chips are stacked up on the robber's space, and the robber chip is placed on top. Oh, that's right, yeah. You leave him on the board with the robber on top, and then someone else can go fight him, and if they win, they get all of that stuff all, back. Okay, so... And then I've got to move whatever I rolled last. Correct. So I just lost a big stack of captured robbers and jeweled uh, to a robber with a high hat value. I found a nugget. One nugget. One corny nugget. One nougat. The train moves. I hear the I'm train the coming. It's rolling around the burn. And so forth. Are you are you quite finished? Uh, no, I found another robber who's Man. got a four on his hat. Tom rolls fours over it. That's three. <laughs> ah, oh. fart on a dog. It's not very nice to the dog. Not very nice. So, dude, I had a roommate in college who ran cross country before that, and he used to tell a story about they were out for a run one day, 
and uh, they came across a dog that was making dog business in the yard, and so you know it's squatting. And one of his teammates ran up to the dog, dropped trout, and peed on it. That's really weird and, and so, unpleasant. And so the dog is trying to do its business, and is, and is, but it's also trying to, like, scuttle walk away from this kid as he pees all over it. And it's just got this look on its face like, why, man? Why? And that happened, apparently. I'm, I'm not a proponent of peeing on dogs. That That's dumb and bad. And why did you do that? But the, the idea of the dog trying to get away but not ceasing to poop. Well, you, just while looking like why you can't you can't pinch off mid mid loaf or like you know you can't well the dog probably could i guess not Is i think it's me now, now. mid loaf oh my gosh i found another freaking bandit it's a one yeah but i got him i killed him killed him dead with a bullet gun yeah man another one another bandit this one's got a four on his hat someone did not shuffle these up very well i get to keep him though You're, you're, are you coming down here to try to get my stacks of bandit, yeah, well, bandit loot? Let's see what I can do. <laughs> I love the dancing around. Oh my god, it's a five bandit. <laughs> I lose everything again. <laughs> then I have to move three spaces. One, two, three. So, for those keeping track at home, there are now three giant piles of bandit money in the bottom corner of the board that just... One of us could get, but... Except I'm never going to move because I keep rolling a train. Yeah, the train moved again. Oh my god, I found another, another one. It's a four, four, and I roll a two. So luckily there's nothing for him to steal that time, but... Train. <laughs> there we go. Managed to shimmy my... Oh my god, it's a five! <laughs> <sighs> and he rolls a four, and... I'd go back to my hut to bank, but I don't have anything to bank at this point. So now right, you're gonna I'm going to try to beat your five robber here. Oh and I have God. nothing to lose right now. So. Yeah, that's true. Nope, I got a two. All right, here we go. I could have used that six several uh, times several before times. now. Yay, I found some nugs. <laughs> you're really, really digging for that, aren't you? Uh, I, yeah, <laughs> another three. Yep, go ahead. Probably a bad plan. Almost certainly a bad plan, but... Well, I found a four robber, so... Which I failed to kill, so now I lose another stack of gold to a robber. You keep rolling what you need to beat the robber on your movement rolls. And then not rolling well on my... Oh, you get to keep rolling. Matched you rolled a match. And there's oh, the six. Oh, yeah, it sucks for me a lot, because you just got a big wad of money that should have been mine. Yep. Oh, train moves. Uh-oh. Train moves. Uh-oh. Two more spaces and it's over. So you better start back to uh, yeah. bank your money, because you don't get it, right, if you don't bank it. Hold on, just, I, 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 got a, I got a three there. I, oh, I, that's I right, sorry. Yeah, that's right. I got some more nuggets. Train moves. Uh, I don't know if we're going to, either of us is going to make it back before that train no. gets there. Oh, nope, that's we're the not, end of it. The train I just moved the train comes in. into town. And so now we lose anything that wasn't banked, and so right. we count them up. Robbers count for two points, right? Correct. 49. I had 41. Nice. So that is Eureka, that or is Eureka. Gold Grabbers. So um, as a, let's, let's, as a game, that was fun, like... It was enjoyable. I don't think it has a lot in the replay value ca- category. No, but if I were eight, 
Yeah, and it's it's a uh, it supports up to six players, so more people could have made it a little more competitive, and, a little and more brawling, and a little more a little faster too. Yeah, um, I like the brawling mechanic. Like it didn't come into play in this game at all, just because I don't think either of us ever was in a great. Well, position it's exactly catch... it's exactly the same as the um as the ban- bandit brawl mechanic. It's just you roll you roll for your value instead of sure having it written on your hat. Yeah, um, but uh, I like that it's there. I yeah, guess is how yep. I put it. So you can steal from each other and um. Yeah, it's kind of cool. It's actually kind of similar to the uh, the big man combat mechanic we made that mm-hmm. has never been used yet. Yeah, because we never want to fight each other because we want to stay friends. Uh, the Marquess of Queensbury rules. The the roll and move thing is kind of weird. Uh, yeah. Like, it, Especially it, the have to hit exactly your... Like, ha- sure. having to hit exactly the distance that you rolled on a, like free form hex board you know you roll and move on in sorry where you're monopoly where you're going around the outside edge is fine Mm -hmm. but on on a on a free to move in any direction hex grid it's pretty strange you know it might be a cool mechanic i just thought of this instead of roll and move it's you you it's like a an orbital thing you set your momentum and you can either increase it or decrease it on a given turn and you move that distance so like if it's at five Mm -hmm. you move five but you might bump it up to six or four or down to four for the next round. How would that work? I have no idea. <laughs> You're a clown. You're a clown. You're a clown. It's the one clown in all of Europe. No, it's just a clown that's very, like, strategic and <laughs> <laughs> you can theme it in any way. It doesn't have to be a clown. <laughs> it's got a lot of It's got a lot of math to it. Yeah. Very score-heavy. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I like it. It was fun. I think it's a... I think... I think Eureka is good. You did a good job, Otto Meyer Vertag Ravensburg. Yeah, this is one of those Ravensburger, uh, Ra- Ravensburger games. Ravensburger. That's how that's how you pronounce German words, right? Exactly. With yeah. a lot of a lot of guttural, phlegmy throat sound. Tycho Brahe once described the language as like English, but spoken underwater by a monster through a walkie-talkie. <laughs> that's pretty good. So I don't know. I don't know the German language particularly well, but. So uh, next time we do this, we're probably going to take a stab at Sagaland, unless I can find something else so that Tom still doesn't get to play it. I've been waiting so long. The one I really wanted to do today was um, Pac-Man, the board game, which we had when I was growing up, but it seems to have disappeared from our basement. So I'm going to see if I can dig up a copy online or at a thrift Mm -hmm. store. But if anyone out there who listens has a copy floating around that you want to send to us to let us play through, I would would be forever grateful. Or if you have any other goofy childhood board games you would like to see us play. Yeah, let us know. On the air, live. And uh, we would we would like to play them. So if uh, if you like this segment, or if you hated this segment, or if you just want to shout things at us, uh, just irrespective of what we talked about on the show today, uh, you can hit us up on Twitter at mildly alarming. You can send us an email at mildly alarming show at gmail dot com. You can leave a comment on the website at www.mildlyalarming.com. or you can stir up your tea leaves in such a way as it sends us a transmission message. A transmission Thus. message. Yeah. It, I lost track of that one. Yeah. We also through. have a Facebook where you can find us if you just search for Mildly Alarming. And we've got our show up on that thing that Stitcher. people use. Stitcher and, and iTunes. And uh, also, it's just being beamed directly toward the surface of the Earth from a network of satellites that I launched with Estes rockets. Wow. They're up there doing wonder, their thing. Is that what you were doing on Wednesday? Yeah. Yep. A lot of rockets. So uh, we'll see you next week. See you next week. The Mildly Alarming Podcast is brought to you by the Extremely Alarming Podcast. 
Having a nice day? Want a rush of adrenaline? The Extremely Alarming Podcast is guaranteed to make you lose control of at least one bodily function or your money back. The Extremely Alarming Podcast. Ah!